You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. Hey everybody, this is Dan, and you've successfully downloaded another installment of the Savage Lovecast, the weekly uh, out loud pre-recorded uh, tape called version of my sex advice column, Savage Love, which you read in uh, alt-weekly newspapers all over the fucking world. Uh, the number here, 206-201-2720. We got lots of calls to get to this week, so let's get to them. Hi, Dan. My name is um, Tom. I'm a uh, 19-year-old in the East Coast, and I have more of a health question. I, I, I'm a cut, and ever since I can remember, I haven't been able to pull down my foreskin. And as you can imagine, I mean, am I trying to have sex? That kind of renders some of the sensation to its best, and it doesn't look normal either. And I guess my question is, do you know? And it seems like my foreskin slightly attached to the head of my penis. And I don't exactly want to go to the doctor and be like, hey doctor, can you help me um, stick my foreskin off my dick? But uh, maybe you have some techniques or you have previous previous experience or uh, some advice. You have to go to the doctor. Sorry. Uh, you may have a condition called phimosis, which a doctor can treat. You may have to be circumcised. Your foreskin may be attached to part of the glands. You may not have had your foreskin may not have fully detached uh, during uh, development uh, in utero or post utero, and a doctor has to treat that. Uh, you can't do that at home alone with a broken beer bottle or something. You really do have to go see a urologist. Uh, doctors that treat human beings are used to human bodies it may be a rare and awkward experience for you to haul it out uh to to pull your junk out in front of a doctor but that doctor has seen tons of junk and won't be impressed or uh unimpressed or anything at all he'll just be there or she'll just be there to treat you and you need treatment i can't do it over the podcast or the phone uh you can't do it yourself at home. There's no uh, unretractable foreskin home repair treatment kits. There's no herbal pills available online that are going to make your foreskin retractable. Some anti-circumcision activists believe that through a regimen of stretching, uh, someone with an unretractable foreskin or phimosis can basically uh, you, you stretch it out and, and not have to be circumcised. Uh, a lot of people feel that that's... Uh, that doesn't work, and you will have to be circumcised. Um, circumcision as an adult is a little unpleasant, but you know what? Not being able to retract your foreskin all your life and not really really being able to have sex all your life and having smegma pour out of your foreskin all your life uh, is going to be worse than the short period of discomfort that will follow circumcision as an adult. Uh, Moses did it. You can do it. Go see a urologist. I mean, circumcision is adult. Moses did. Moses didn't see any urologists, so far as I know, because there were no urologists in the desert. Hi, Dan. Calling from Colorado. Um, just wondering when, if ever, is it appropriate to fake an orgasm? I don't know. Sometimes it seems like, you know, oh, he's trying so hard. It's such a good effort. It's just not happening tonight. Let's just make it easier. Let him think like he did it. 
when nobody's feelings are hurt, nothing bad happens. Even if usually I have no problem. But sometimes it's just not going to happen. So I was just wondering what you thought. When is it appropriate to fake an orgasm? Never. Maybe in a high school production of Grease that has simulated sex for some reason, but never in any other instant is it instance is it appropriate to fake an orgasm? Because what you're going to do is you're going to set up the girl after you for unreasonable expectations coming down on her head from the guy that you have misled, not only about his own skills, uh, perhaps, but also about the female orgasm and sexual response. You know, if a guy, if every time a guy sleeps with a woman, uh, any woman with any, all the women he sleeps with, she has like this, you know, command performance, earth shattering, completely phony orgasm. He's going to look at the first woman who comes up to him and is honest and says, you know, what you're doing isn't working or you actually have to pay attention to my clit too, or I only can come for moral sex or I don't come every time because I just don't. He's going to look at her and think, what is wrong with this freak of a woman? Everybody else. He's not going to know that everybody else. He's not going to let himself think that to protect his own ego. That all these other women he slept with, they each, you know, they felt so bad for him because, you know, or he was working so hard. They just wanted to wrap it up. So they faked it. You can't fake it because it just makes guys into assholes and puts too much pressure on the next woman to fake it or on you to fake it. I get letters all the time from women who faked it once with a guy who's a one night stand Started, you know, they had a second night stand, faked it again because he was doing what he did last time, and you know, she led him to believe it worked last time, and then wound it up, you know, is it not in a situation where she's been faking it over and over again for five fucking years, and she can't open her mouth and say, uh, that wasn't working for me ever, all at all, never, not once. I was lying to you the whole time because it really is a lie, and you don't want to lie to guys like that. You sound really charming and articulate. And that's all you have to do is be charming and articulate about it. You have to say, you know, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I'm still enjoying it, whether I come or not. You know what? The same applies to guys. I've had sex with lots of guys. The guy I've had sex with the last 13 years, once in a while, one or the other of us doesn't come. We just sort of like go, hey, glad you had fun. I'm going to sleep now um, because I totally enjoyed it. But, you know, I'm just not going to come. I don't feel like it. It's, and, and it works that we can say that to each other because we don't then freak out. We don't regard it as somehow, a, you know, a strike against us as lovers or whatevers. And if I can say that to my partner as a guy, you should be able certainly to say that to your sex partners as a woman. So anyway, once again, to sum up, when is it appropriate? It is never appropriate. In advance of having sex with a guy, you might want to elbow in the ribs and say, I'm going to really love this. Sometimes I come, sometimes I don't. I don't want you to be too stressed out about it. But then, you know, be proactive about your orgasm if you want to go for it. But if you don't get there, don't fake it. I'm calling because I took your advice from podcast number one. Uh, you had a caller who asked what to do with a bad kisser. And you said to make it all about I statements, um, not to make it about them being a bad kisser, but to make it about I get turned on by a certain kind of kissing. And here's what you can do to make me get turned on. Well, I have a boyfriend who uh, is a great lover in a lot of ways. I mean, like the best one I've ever been with, except for the kissing. He does the tongue jamming down the throat kind of thing. So I listen to your podcast and... I not only talk to him in my in, in I statements, but I 
didn't even say that his style of kissing didn't turn me on. I asked him to kiss me in a different way in addition to the way he kisses me because I wanted variety and we could add this on to our sexual repertoire. Um, and this was something that turned me on and perhaps we could try it. Well, he won't kiss me anymore now and I have no idea what to do. I mean, he'll kiss me, but it's really awkward and he'll, it'll be, you know, distant and kind of pulling away. And when I ask, he says, well, he just doesn't know how to kiss me anymore because he doesn't know what I want. And I tell him, well, I'll show you what I want. And he gets weird about it. And I would completely dump him except that everything else, sex and the relationship and everything else is really perfect. So I just want to give it a shot before I dump him over the kissing. And I was wondering if you had any advice. All right. Thank you. Hey, Sarah, it's Dan. I just listened to your message, and I thought I'd give you a call. Hey, Dan. And have a little intervention. How long ago did you have this? Uh, you, it sounds like you said absolutely all the right things. And not only that, but you did the right thing in saying, you know, I want to be kissed this way. He's clearly turned on by kissing you that way that doesn't do anything for you, but you were willing to, like, do that with him, too, for him. Right. But yeah. also be kissed yeah. in the way you want to be kissed for you, so you were meeting him halfway. Exactly. And he's totally been a fucking baby about it. Yeah, I think you you had said something in your podcast about uh, women tend to overestimate how fragile women's egos are, uh-huh. and I think in this case I underestimated. <laughs> but how did you know? How long ago was it that you said this? That you had the conversation? Uh, it, I think it was like two or three weeks ago. And in his defense, I had bad timing. He's been in bed with a migraine for a month, and so he's been kind of in a pussy mood anyway. Hmm. But it was like two or three weeks ago. Is he out of the migraine zone now? He is, yeah. He's just feeling better. And he's still sulking about this. Well, he's been out of town for the last week. He's coming back tonight. Okay, well, it's obviously too soon to be thinking about breaking up with him over it. Yeah, Because yeah. it sounds like you gave it to him at a bad time. You haven't actually spent that much time together now that he's out of out of bed, and you haven't seen each other much. Right, right. What you need to do now is laugh it the fuck off. <laughs> not, what, not what you asked for from him, but like... The, the building tension and stress over it. You okay. need to find a way to, not not like putting all the onus on you, he needs to find a way to. You both need to find a way to get back to some sense of pleasure and play and like acknowledge that you're at this impasse about it in, yeah. a, in an upbeat way and say, God, the, all the rest of the sex is so great and we dig each other so much that mm-hmm. we can't let something as silly and stupid as this break us up, can we? Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty funny thing. <laughs> so I think it would be great to be able to laugh about it together. And, and you should be able to laugh about it. And hopefully his, you know, maybe it's partly his ego. Maybe he's resentful about when exactly you said it. He also might be a little humiliated. Yeah. Because he may feel like, yeah. how long have you been going out? Only like three months. Well, he may feel like, well, why didn't she say so all that other time? And have you told yeah. him that you, like, dig everything else in his sexual repertoire and you think he's an awesome lover? Oh, believe me, I've said that lots of times. Okay, well, the past few weeks. Yeah. He, he, yeah, you might need to keep saying it for a while because he does have a fragile ego, <laughs> apparently. And yeah. he may be wondering, like, what's the next shoe to drop? She doesn't like the way I kiss. Has she been, you know, not liking the way I fuck? And what's he, next? He, yeah, because actually he's been saying things about, like, he's not sure. Maybe we're not sexually compatible because, you know, and it's, it's just blowing it way out of proportion. Well, so. you need to reassure him for a reasonable amount of time. 
and then yeah. he needs to stop being a fucking baby about it. And if yeah. he doesn't stop being fucking baby about it, you're not gonna you are gonna dump him over yeah. this. But yeah. it's not about the kissing. It's about the shitty communication skills. It's about his inability to take any constructive criticism right. and about his insecurity. Right. Those are the things that should this end up destroying your relationship. Those are the things that destroyed the relationship, not his kissing style. It's his right. communication style, his inability to take criticism style, his insecurity style. Those are all deal breakers. Yeah. And you should, yeah. you should be able to say that to him, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's something, yeah, I, I, um, I'm hoping we can get into a lighter note about all this so we can talk about this with some sanity. Well, you should That's play it. the podcast for him because I'm sure he'll, it'll do wonders for his ego uh, and insecurity to hear us talking about it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually just thinking about that. <laughs> well, he won't recognize your voice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm hoping. I don't think he. I don't. He's not that familiar with you as much as I am. Oh, good, like, good, good. Like reading you for ten years or something. So he's. He, yeah, I'm gonna keep him away from the computer for a while. Okay. Well, good luck with it. All right. Thank and you. And so you much, did. Man. You did the right thing. And you have yeah. a right to do what you did and make the demands that you made. And you were gracious and willing to like keep up with the pile-driving tongue-kissing style, too, a little bit. Yeah. There's a lot of bad kissers out there. I, you know, how, I, I don't know, how does somebody make it that far without somebody Because else? a lot of women aren't very assertive and will not speak up. Yeah. There's women out there, we talked earlier, maybe you want to use this at-risk use, there are women out there who fake orgasms for years because they don't want the guy to think that they're not absolutely loving every goddamn thing he's doing. There are also women out there who for years will allow a guy to kiss her in a way that she finds revolting. Mm-hmm. And won't speak up. So he's probably had like a string of girlfriends who either dug it, because some women do, or were yeah. like, all right, I guess it's part of the price of admission. Right, right. Yeah, well, well, now it got passed on to me. So. And you have to solve <laughs> to this problem. About it. Good luck. Well, thanks. Bye. Hi, Dan. This is Leslie. My daughter and I were watching a broadcast about Angelina Jolie. And... Let me preface this. I'm 50-something years old. She is 18, my daughter, not Angelina. But the point was, this whole thing came up about S&M. And I made a comment that I felt that people, I don't care if you're the S or the M, you know, are working out some problems from their wives in that situation. And it's not a healthy situation. And my daughter, 18, said, oh, how dare you judge these people. Let us ask Dan because he'll know whether that's healthy or not. And I'm really not sure. She says it's a generation gap. I say, I've got a lot of experience. And I think, you know, it's not always healthy. So let us know your thoughts. Uh, Hey, Leslie, it's Dan. I just listened to your message and I'm giving you a call. Hi, Dan. Uh, so do you think that people sometimes have uh, missionary position, heterosexual, marital, completely boring intercourse uh, for all the wrong reasons and in an unhealthy relationship and they're acting out in unhealthy ways when they do that? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think they do. I think sometimes people have really boring vanilla sex for all the wrong reasons and with the wrong people out of feelings of guilt uh, they could be doing it in an abusive relationship, right? Well. So the, uh, the the idea is that 
You know, sometimes people express themselves sexually in unhealthy ways, regardless of what they're doing sexually. You can be into S&M and power exchange and DNS and whatever people call it. There's so many names for it now. And you can express that fetish and kink in, in positive ways, in healthy ways, or in unhealthy ways and in negative ways and in dysfunctional ways. So the question you need to ask is not like look at Angelina Jolie and go, she admits to having engaged in S&M. There's something fucking wrong with her. You have to look at her and go, she's in, she says she's into S&M. I wonder like whether she engaged in that in a responsible, healthy, functional, good way. It well, indulged in the things that turned her on. But what, what the question is, is, my daughter says that happens all the time. It's, it's just on the menu, period. And I'm saying I don't think it is. I think it's more of a, you know, I think that it's not as common. And I'm not talking about game playing and, and white, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about serious S&M where it's a real addiction. And a real addiction. As well, opposed to, know, like, blowjobs, which aren't an addiction, or, you know, cunnilingus with can't be, can't be an addiction. Okay, I have a caffeine addiction. Yes. Well, there's things that, you know, people like to do the things that turn them on. And it's not like, you know, sometimes you'll think, oh, you know, he's got a foot fetish, you know, so, you know he kissed some girl's feet, now he should be over it. Like, he got no, to do but... it. Isn't he done? No, people, what, it, what turns you on is going to turn you on Today and tomorrow and the next day. So just like people like to have vaginal intercourse who are straight over and over and over again, people into S&M want to do it over and over and over again because it makes them wet and or hard. Okay. So it's not an addiction or a compulsion. It's what turns them on and they're doing it because it turns them on. I just wondered if there was an emotional base to it, something psychological or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I'm asking to. There is, absolutely. But nobody knows exactly how it works. Or why? You know, human beings are incredibly complicated. Our, our society and our cultures are very, very complicated. Sex is incredibly complicated. Right. And human yeah. beings, you know, dogs don't have, you know, bubble and smoking fetishes. Right? We do. Humans do. We fetishize do. everything. Right. But my cat's a compulsive <laughs> uh, uh, rabbit. But but it's a univ- it's a universal impulse the the human propensity to to towards fetishes so and kinks and it is somehow innate in our makeup and you see it across all cultures and throughout time so there's something about human beings that this is a constant the the fetishizing impulse and kink so we can't say it's like not healthy it's part of who we are it's totally healthy. It's part of our, and we can express it in healthy ways, or but not. Would, would you say, though, I mean, it's S&M that's common. I mean, I'm not sure that missionary is considered, just, I mean, I don't know who just puts that on the menu. But um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think it's as common. I think it's more common than I, it used to be. Yeah, okay. be. Because people now have sort of, permission to to be kinky <laughs> you know a lot of it emanating from people like me you people should enjoy the things that turn them on power dynamics are a part of every relationship certainly every sexual relationship and what s&m is is cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off it's they call it play 
in the BDSM community because that's how they express it. That's how it's regarded. It's a big show. It's a big drama with dick and pussy coming together at the end and everybody having an orgasm and falling on the floor in delight. You know, and it's a way, I think, often for people to purge, you know, their insecurities about... Oh, right. That's what I was saying. That's what, that was one of the things I said. I guess what we're coming to is you and your daughter are both right. We're both right. Cause There's totally a psychological aspect to it, you know, the drama that's being acted out. But it's healthy, and it is normal. Well, even in the Bible, I mean, in the Crusades, there was the self... Flagellants. Yes, yes. So, you know, I'm not, I, I wouldn't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to be hurt, so to me, I mean, it's kind of like, wow. But on the other hand, I, I do think that there's emotional need, and if it didn't surface there, it would surface in some other way. Perhaps. And for some reason, people, it's a lancing of the boils. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Have Bye. a great day. You too. Hey, Dan, I've got a question about herpes. I was diagnosed with HSV-1 probably about five years ago. I had an outbreak um, in my lower part of my body, sort of just above um, my anus. And um, it's now been my, my outbreaks have been very infrequent. I had uh, a really bad one when I the first one, and then another one maybe about nine months later that was sort of bad. Um, after that, I had maybe one more outbreak a year later that I didn't even, you know, bother getting medications for because it was so insignificant and went away very quickly. Since then, it's been maybe about three years, and I have not had an outbreak in all that time. And my question is concerning the virulency of HSV-1 as compared to HSV-2, and is there a point at which, you know, after a number of years have gone by, I can just sort of feel like, you know, the HSV-1 is so dormant in my system that it's just not really uh, going to come back, or does HSV-1 go away like this? Um, can I just assume that I'm really not that at risk of exposing other people, um, or what? I want to continue my herpes not a big deal campaign with this call. Uh, I don't want to minimize the you know, discomfort of herpes, the stress of herpes, but people continue to react to herpes in the United States, particularly as if it were Ebola and your head's going to explode and your dick's going to fall off and your vagina's going to close up if you get herpes, which is not true. Uh, with HSV1, uh, also known as or regarded as the oral herpes, although you can get it top or bottom and you got it on the bottom, uh, it's easily spread. People who have HSV1, even if they're not symptomatic, even if you're not having outbreaks, uh, are infectious about 5% of the time, even when they're not having outbreaks. But get this, half of all people by the time they're teenagers ha have antibodies to HSV-1 in their systems, which means they've been exposed, often as children, because it is spread through very casual contact, through social kissing, uh, and very easily acquired. And by the time people are 50 years old, 90% of everybody has antibodies for HSV-1 in their systems. So they've been exposed. Uh, if I were you... I would feel uh, honor-bound, duty-bound to disclose, but also to inform at the same time, uh, offering up the information that I just offered you, so as to set your partner at ease. 
you've had very few outbreaks. The odds of you shedding the virus at any given time are very, very low. And the odds that the person that you're talking to, even if they don't know uh, that they're already exposed, that they are already exposed, are very, very high. So we should just chill the fuck out about it. Should you disclose? Yes, you should disclose. On the off chance that the person you sleep with doesn't hasn't been exposed and comes down with it, you don't want the fucking bad karma and anger uh, coming at you from that person about you withholding that information and not revealing. Just better to be upfront about it so they know what they're in for, but also to, so they really know what they're in for, they should go to a website or Google it and learn a little bit about herpes uh, and learn that it's just not that big a fucking deal. And if someone has a healthy, functioning immune system, they may be exposed and never show any symptoms. And for reasons that no one quite understands, uh, that doctors don't quite understand, most people who have herpes have one or two outbreaks early on, much like you did, uh, or a handful of outbreaks of decreasing severity, and then no outbreaks for decades or for the rest of their lives, so long as their immune system is healthy and functioning. So herpes, uh, not pleasant, uh, awkward subject of conversation, but not that big a fucking deal. Hi, Dan. I'm just calling to say thank you so much for helping to destigmatize herpes. I contracted herpes about six years ago, and I was totally devastated. I thought my sex life was over forever. Nobody would ever want to be with me again. I was totally ashamed. And soon thereafter, I moved to Europe, and I have friends who live in various countries in Europe and was soon told by all of them that herpes is no big deal, and I soon came to realize that here in Europe, it's no big deal, and there isn't the stigma and shame attached to it that Americans somehow um, put on it. I think more Europeans know the simple fact that many, many, many people have herpes and it's actually quite common. And somehow in the U.S., a lot of people think it's it's more rare than it is when in fact many more people have it than actually know. And so here in Europe, it's treated kind of like the common cold, meaning it's no big deal and there's no shame attached to it. And um, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for helping to change the attitude about herpes in America because it really is no big deal. There's no reason to be ashamed of it. Thanks very much for that call and uh, for hammering home the herpes. No big deal. Message for me. That brings us to the end of this week's Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question for a future Savage Lovecast, you should call 206-201-2720 and leave me a message. Please include a phone number in case we need to call you back for further details or so that I can yell at you in person on the phone live. And you download the podcast every week at www.thestranger.com slash savage. Uh, thanks a lot, everybody who called, and we'll be back at you next week, me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth, with another installment of the Savage Podcast. <laughs>